We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Intelligent Squared, where great minds meet. I'm producer Faye Adabita. And I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. This is the third and final part of our holiday reads, looking back at some of the great books of 2023 and the authors who came to Intelligent Squared to talk about them. What have we got coming up, Connor? For this episode, we're going to be hearing from Ravinder Bogal, the journalist, chef and restauranter whose book Comfort and Joy is a cooking favourite that's good all year round. And we've got Victoria Smith, the writer whose book Hags put the experiences of middle-aged women into the spotlight. But before all that, we're heading back to October and our event at the Union Chapel in London with the writer Michael Lewis. He's the journalist and best-selling author of non-fiction hits that have also gone on to become Hollywood box office blockbusters, such as Moneyball and The Big Short. He was in London to discuss his latest book, Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon, which tells the story of crypto entrepreneur Sam Bankman-Fried. And it's a story that's not yet finished. Sam Bankman-Fried is awaiting sentencing for his involvement in a litany of financial offences following the collapse of his multi-billion dollar crypto empire, FTX. Lewis had a front row seat to all of the action, having trailed Bankman-Fried for many of the months leading up to his arrest in late 2022. And joining him on stage back in October was our host for the evening, the journalist, presenter and broadcaster, Ridla Shah. Let's hear some of that now. I want to begin really simply by asking how you came to meet Sam Bankman-Fried. How did you get involved in all of this? So a lot of my books start accidentally and this was no exception. Uh, September of 2021, I had a call from um, a friend and former book subject, the main character of Flash Boys, uh, asking me if I would meet with this person who he was about to do a business deal with. The person was Sam Bankman-Fried. I'd never heard of him. He said he was about to swap shares in his company for shares in, in Sam Bankman-Fried's company, FTX, which I'd never heard of. And he said, um, it's, an, it's such an odd situation for me because it's a big deal. The, this company, FTX, is the fastest growing financial business I've ever seen. Um, everybody in our inner circle is sort of on board, but it's, getting, it's very hard for us to get a read on who he is. Um, uh, he says, I, I met with him. I don't have a good feel. Nobody, he's, he was the richest person in the world under 30 mm-hmm. at that point. And he said, I called all over Wall Street and nobody knows who he is. So I said, sure. And Sam Bankman-Fried happened to have grown up in the Bay Area where I live, and he was visiting his parents, and he came over to see me. Um, that had been maybe a month later. And he tumbles out of an Uber. He looks like he tumbled out of a dumpster. He, he's wearing his shorts and his T-shirt. And, his, and uh, he's always dressed for a hike, but I think I was the first one I ever took him on one. And, and <laughs> so we went on the walk in the Berkeley Hills, and uh, after about an hour, um, I had ceased to really think very much about my friend's interest and, and started to think about my own because he was, the things that were coming out of his mouth, both how fast he had made it, how the world had responded. I mean, he was at that point, he was saying $22.5 billion. How the world was configuring itself around his money, what he intended to do with the money. Um, at the end of the walk, I just said, I, I don't know where this is all gonna end up, but could I just watch? 
And so you were impressed. I was, so I, let me, there's a backstory to this. I had decided some years ago, and the last book I wrote, The Premonition, was the resu one result of this, that I was going to start books with a character. That I, that the character in a situation, that I was going to cease to, I was going to let the story take care of itself. So what I thought after two hours with him is I thought I have a, this is a character. I don't know where it goes or what it is, but it's just, it was so odd. It was peculiar. And um, the first thing I said, you know, it was months before I called up a, a publisher and said, maybe I've got a book here. I, I, and, I, and what I said to them, I can remember what I said. I don't know, I still didn't know what the story was, but it was, there's a Sam Bankman-Fried shaped hole in the world now that I did not know exist. I want to, I want to use him to describe that hole. And, and so I thought he could take me places. And in particular, so from that walk, the places I thought he could take me, I was really interested that he was a spawn of Wall Street, that he was, he, especially very modern Wall Street, high frequency trading, had given him his identity. I thought it's a way into that story. Like what is going on in markets there? He could take me there. He could take me into American politics because he was, he was, gonna, he, he was threatening to spend a billion dollars in the next presidential election. And he was already, had already become Bi Biden's second biggest donor uh, and was meddling in all kinds of interesting ways in congressional races. I thought he could take me into crypto. I was, crypto was on a list of things I was interested in. I had not been that interested in it as people, crypto people had called me over the years, write about us, write about us, because they were always promoting themselves. He, he was interesting because he was the first crypto pers person in crypto I had met who didn't, who didn't care all that much about crypto. Right. He was agnostic. Mostly they're religionists. He had the view that this could all be BS. It could all fall apart. Uh, so I was thinking like where he takes me. Uh, and now he's taken, he ended up taking me a lot, many further places than I imagined <laughs> he was going to take me. And that journey may still be continuing, but let's pick up on a couple of things you mentioned there. So his background, his parents are academics. You talked about the fact that he was giving money away. So it was at university that he became interested in this thing called effective altruism. Just tell us a little bit about this. It, it's a proper kind of ideology that he got. You people are responsible for this. It comes <laughs> out of Oxford, right? It's, it, it's uh, I mean, as I understood it. So he, he yes, he had in university without, he was kind of had no particular direction in life. He, he was a son, child of two Stanford law professors and had kind of always assumed he would be a professor of some sort. Given his abilities, he would have been maybe a physics or a math teacher, but, but, uh, but actually wasn't all that interested in it. Two things happen to him in university that give him direction. One is he collides with these high-frequency traders who discover a curious aptitude in him, and we can talk about what that mm. is, because it is a curious aptitude. But he also, he also collides with effective altruism, which is young then, it's 2012. Um, and the, it, it, this is a movement that grows out of utilitarianism. It, the, the, the greatest good for the greatest number. But it, it's, and there's a philosopher at Oxford named Toby Ward who gets the movement going by making the point that at very little inconvenience to himself, if he directs the money he gives away really smartly, effectively, that he can do enormous good. And he writes a paper where he shows that if he gives away half his salary over his lifetime, he will spare 80,000 African children of blindness. And um, the movement uh, actually kind of actively starts to recruit. And it finds, it's, it finds the people most interested in the movement in kind of math and physics programs, mainly at American universities, at elite American universities. And one of the movement's founders, a fellow named Will McGaskill, well-known, mm. uh, gives a talk in Cambridge that Sam hears. And the talk, the important parts of the talk are, at that point, Sam knew about effective altruism and was interested in its ideas. But effective altruism had spawned another idea, and it was, it was earned to give. And this is what Sam hears Will McGaskill basically talk about. And it's, it's as you, 20-year-old college student who doesn't know what you want to do with your life, think about what you want to do with your life. Um, consider, the, cons, cons, consider this choice. Let's make this choice explicit. Uh, you could go become a doctor and go work in Africa and save so many lives. Uh, or if you have this aptitude that Wall Street craves, you could go to Wall Street and you could make money enough to send 20 doctors to Africa and save 20 times as many, as many lives. Now what's happening here is your life choices are being turned into a math problem. And Sam responded 
powerfully to this. And it was this earn to give idea. Okay, I'm going to go figure out how to make as much money as possible. And especially, especially divorce, it's not going to be a matter of the heart. I'm not doing this because I'm feeling a certain way, that, that this is my way of having the most impact on the world. And this is the beginning of, the, of Sam Bankman Freed as a, as a character in the world. That, that he at this virtually the same time without having, it, I mean, this is not a person who is a money person. He does not grow up with like, and never really becomes someone who has much interest in, in material things. Um, and his parents don't either, kind of lives in his head. Uh, that, that the idea that it bewildered the parents that all of a sudden the child is being recruited by Wall Street firms and that this this thing he can do and they've discovered he can do and it, and it pays not just a few million dollars, it might pay many, 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 many millions of dollars. So we'll, we'll come back to the money aspect a bit later, but just talk about that aptitude. So what is it about Sam Bankman-Fried that made him so good at high-frequency trading when he joined a Wall Street firm? So when I went through Wall Street uh, interviews back in the 1980s, they were, they, were, they were their own strange event, mainly designed to sort of test your nerve. Mm. I mean, they do just weird things like... Uh, um, generally what they were trying to do is make you as uncomfortable as possible and see how you responded. And um, the, the, the interviews that identify Sam Bankman-Fried as possibly very gifted uh, in a way that the high-frequency traders care about, and these are the firms, by the way, these firms, I mean, unless you're in Wall Street or in finance, you may never have heard of these places. Well, Jane Street. Jane Street, I'd never Jump heard of Trading, until... Tower Research, mm. um, uh, Susquehanna Capital, mm. uh, Citadel, Virtu. These are the names of the places. And this is, uh, an, uh, this is a phenomenon of the last 15 years. They, have, it, they are taking the interesting risks in the markets now. It's no longer Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley that are doing this. It's these firms, are, they are the ones who are establishing market prices. And, uh, and in these places, Sums of money are being made that dwarf the sums of money that were made in their predecessors. I mean, it used to be a big deal to make a million dollars in a firm. There are people in these firms who make billions of dollars. Um, so Sam, and the tests they put you through and the kind of people they're looking for are a little different. Social skills, not important, not at all important. It's, it's, what's important is it's, it's a mathiness, but it's not just a mathiness. It's a mathiness combined with an ability to deal with messiness. So it's, it's Sam Bankman-Fried, good at chess, good at math camp, but not the very best. Not going to be a famous mathematician, not going to be a chess champion. But if instead you change chess so that every move has to be done within 10 seconds and every two minutes uh, some voice shouts a rule change, so queens become pawns or pawns can fly or whatever they, it is, it doesn't matter. Creating a kind of semi-chaotic environment, that's the environment that at least the, the, the people who are recruiting for these firms think you need to be good at in order to, to thrive. Um, but so, he also appears to be willing to take risks. Where other people might hesitate, he jumps in. Correct. But you, you have to be able to make decisions where other people might be paralyzed. And, and he would say, and I think this is true, that the kind of problems they give you tend to, paral tend to cause people just to not not make decisions. And they're looking for people who will make decisions and make them fairly quickly. Uh, and so the, uh, his willingness to make the decisions was an, was an asset in this process. Um, I mean, we could run, we don't want to run through any of these tests. They're incredibly, no. <laughs> they're incredibly arcane what they do to these people. And you look and you say, like, how, could it, how do you even think about that problem? Mm. If, I, mean, one, I mean, for example, to, to reduce to a quantitative matter, uh, what's the likelihood that I have a relative who played professional baseball? And to think through that problem in a really sophisticated way and do it quickly. It's one of the tests they put him through. And so and another way of thinking about what they do is um, learning how to quantify things that you might think are uh, of as qualitative matters or qualitative decisions. He had the ability to do that. He, he off the charts ability. Like the, when, he, when he went through the, the, these um, interviews, they would, one of the firms stopped the interviews halfway through the interviews and said, we don't need to do any more. You just outscored anybody this year. And his problem, however, is that these tests and the problem these firms have, I think, is these tests do not filter for any kind of social ability. Uh, and this is a person who, to describe, to describe him as isolated, 
doesn't fully capture the, the, the nature of the person. Um, this is a person who, in a, from a very early age, so when I ask him, I mean, which you, I would do, would, would do with any subject, give me a list of people uh, from the, who knew you before the age of 18, so I can just get a sense of what your childhood was like. He couldn't name a person. He, his parents, his brother was off the list because his brother, he didn't have anything to do with his brother. And that I had to kind of dig and dig and dig to find people who had interaction with him before the age of 18. He felt, he felt um, uh, first, no real feeling for people. Like in the presence of people, he didn't feel love. He didn't feel, he said, I didn't feel pride. I didn't feel any of the things people normally feel. He said, the thing I most weirdly couldn't do is I couldn't make facial expressions. So when people were interacting with me, I wasn't giving, they, they didn't know how to respond to me, so they just thought I was this weird thing. So we, he, I don't, go ahead, you can interrupt I was going to say, he does at one time, though, talks about, talk about being depressed. And I wonder if that re reflects the fact that he does feel emotion, but just perhaps not in the way that you or I might. I'm sure he feels something. He thinks, but he, his self-identity was, I don't understand other, I don't understand these feelings. I don't, I don't have these feelings. And he, um, and he was ostracized all the way through childhood, less so at MIT, because MIT tends to collect these people who are ostracized by everybody else when they're in high school. But he was- <laughs> Some uh, recognition there so, in the audience. So, I mean, but he, you know, he was the kind of person who even the nerds rejected because he was such a nerd, right? There was no spot for this in, in, even, in, in, even in a private Silicon Valley high school where his classmate is Steve Jobs' son, that you would think that would, there'd be plenty of people who he could not relate to, who could not relate to him and they would bond over that. But, I, I, but, but it, that's I not what happened. I wonder though if it develops later on, just jumping forward for a moment, into a kind of arrogance, because he tells you at one point that he doesn't struggle to read other problem, other people. His problem is that people can't read him. And I, there's a little bit of me that thinks, hmm, come on, come on. He was pretty good at reading other people. I, you know, I think he was surprised. This is, the, this is the part that doesn't fit the overall picture, that his astuteness about other people. Um, not always, but better than you would have imagined given how, and the point about other people reading him is if he's not giving anything, yeah. it's hard, right? Yeah. He, when he is in college, when he starts to develop ambition to go to work on Wall Street, and he realizes that this, there's been no social filter, but eventually there's going to be problems because he can't do the social thing, he gets a mirror and he starts practicing like how to smile, and he's resentful about it. Why do I need to grin when you say something that's amusing? Isn't it enough that I just listen? But he forces himself to learn these things. Um, so you say arrogance. I agree. It's, and it's the arrogance of a boy who sits in a room thinking about the world and watching the world for 18 years and trying to position his, himself in a way that is not completely defeating um, in relation to that world. And he had a hollow sense of his own superiority without anything really up to the point he hits Wall Street with any kind of evidence to suggest he is superior in any way. He was, he was never thought extremely special mm. until he hits Wall Street. So he's successful at Jane Street, uh, successful trader, but then sees a gap in the market and decides to leave and create his own firm, Alameda Research. Can we do one thing before we move yes, on from Wall on. Street? I don't want to interrupt your interview. No, no, it's fine. But this is something, no, this never will get mentioned in the, in the, in the press. What they did in this firm is two chapters of the book are just about this. And it's riveting what's going on in this place. And I'm going to give one example. Sam Bankman-Fried and his, a few colleagues, before the presidential election of 2016. It's a great example. It's crazy stuff, right? Mm. But this will give you, a, whet your appetite. Mm. Although you're all getting the book anyway, so I don't really need to do that. But, it, but, but the, so before the Clinton-Trump campaign, or race, or during the race, before the election, um, they all, everybody notices, like everybody in the financial markets notices, that whenever there's good news for Trump, the stock markets collapse. And whenever there's good news for Clinton, the stock markets go up. And they think to themselves, we wonder if we can get information, real-time information on election night before anybody else in the world and trade on it because it's obviously going to move markets around. And this is audacious. This is what these, this is, if you ask what Sam Bankman-Fried and these firms are doing, what they're generally, they are, they're, they're looking for, they're looking to, to get information no one else has before anybody has it and put it in the markets, but on the level of the second or the millisecond. Mm. And so they build 
and a, they, they build a data collection uh, um, machine where traders are assigned to states in the United States to find better, faster ways to get the information from the polls. And you would think, well, how could, that, how could they do that? But the way up to that point, Americans are getting the results of their election is on, the ca is on cable news, and the cable, it goes to commercials. The guy has to walk across a set to his map. There, there are all these human things that are slowing down the information arriving in the minds of Wall Street people. And they indeed build this thing that enables them to have sometimes minutes, sometimes hours advantages on the market about what's happening in this election. And it's, Sam is right in the middle of this. This is the sort of thing that completely captivates him. Um, they make a bet. The bet is that, if, as they see that Trump is going to win, that U.S. stock markets are going to collapse. They bet the foreign stock markets are going to collapse too, but they make their big bet in the U.S. stock markets. That's what they do in the first four or five hours. After five hours after the election, they have the most profitable trade in the history of Jane Street. They've made several hundred million dollars in a matter of hours. Sam goes to bed for a few hours and comes back, and it's the worst trade in the history of Jane Street because markets have rallied. The U.S. markets have rallied on the news of Trump, and they've lost all this money. This is, this is this, it's, what happens next tells you something about Sam Bankman-Fried. He's lost. He's just orchestrated the worst trade in the history of this firm. The firm, the way they think about things, they don't blame him. The process was fine. Everybody approved of it. They don't look to scapegoat him. They just say, like, we won't do this again. Mm. One of the reasons Sam Bankman-Fried leaves Jane Street is he's upset they won't do this again. He says, the problem wasn't that we shouldn't have done this. It's just we should have thought about it a little better, how we traded it. We should keep doing this. And he found their lack of ambition frustrating. So that's, it's an amazing thing. So then he finds crypto. Okay, You're so Alameda right. Research, I'm going to spool forward a little bit. Right. He gets funding from Effective Altruists, uh, partly to help Alameda Research do its work. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Um, he, but there is at some point a schism, right? Well, this is a foreshadowing of what, what is going to happen. Uh, Four billion dollars goes missing, and a whole bunch of people. No, four million. Four million. But okay, four, million four million in a pile. Four million. I apologise. Four million dollars goes missing, uh, and a bunch of people choose to leave. Should alarm bells have rung in many people's minds at that moment about yes, so they, Sam Bankman-Fried? And they did. So what happens is, he's going to do. He's going to be the first high-frequency trader into crypto. Basically, is the is the idea. Um, he moves to California at the end of 2017, and for for various reasons, only recruits other effective altruists to work in this hedge fund. None of our very, only a couple of whom had any real financial experience. Mm. So there are 20 or so of them. And within months, the firm is, a, is in a civil war because half the firm thinks Sam is either a crook or so catastrophically sloppy that he might as well be a crook. And they're missing, they're, they're, they're missing money. Like, literally don't know where it is. And money that has come to them from effective altruists. So they're thinking, this money could have gone to save lives in Africa. Instead, it's, it's gone to fuel Sam Bankman-Fried's mad trading. And now we don't know where it is. And Sam doesn't want, care to go find it. He wants to just keep trading because he thinks he'll turn up anyway. So it did set off alarm bill, bells uh, in, the, in the effective altruist community because they were the only ones privy to what was going on. Half the people quit the firm, including the entire management committee apart from Sam. And, um, and they find the money. So that, so then it gets very complicated because they've accused him of stealing the money, they've accused him of losing the money, and that, uh-oh, actually the money's there. And actually these things he wants to do make sense, and, it, and he starts to make a lot of money. And I caught the effective altruists who had left and had accused him of wrongdoing in the moment uh, when things were going great for Sam Bankman-Fried, and all but one of them were sheepish and apologetic, like we should never have left, we should have trusted him. Uh, but they, they, they were all having second thoughts about the schism. But the schism actually is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen because the carelessness was breathtaking. Michael Lewis there, speaking with Ritala Shah about the book Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon, back in October 2023. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What's next, Connor? We're going back to June and an interview with writer Victoria Smith. Her book, Hags, the Demonization of Middle-Aged Women, confronts the disdain and vitriol she encountered as a woman entering midlife and dissects the misogyny at the heart of one of society's less talked about and discriminatory tropes. Victoria was in conversation with Hadley Freeman from the Sunday Times. Let's hear what they had to say. There's something about the cover of this book and the subtitle that is familiar from another book. And I wondered if there is a connection to another book by another writer that you wanted to make with this book? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, there was kind of, I did have in my mind, so Chavs by Owen Jones, because I think what he did um, very effectively there was pointed out that a marginalised group were being targeted and blamed and stigmatised from a position that was supposedly moral, that kind of it was fine to make fun of working class people because actually they were really bad and that, you know, so so it was legitimate. And I think there's something a kind of similar, well, it's fine to make fun of middle-aged women because they're, they're bad, they're bigots, they're, you know, and they're on the wrong side of history. And there's this kind of elitist position on it that, um, you know, they, they, don't, they don't know what's going on. And yes, yeah, so there was that, but I also... Um, yeah, I think he probably wouldn't see that connection himself. Because <laughs> um, you, you mentioned before about one of the differences with the current moment is seeing people in allegedly progressive spheres really punching yeah. on uh, middle-aged women or whether they call them middle-aged, you know, middle-class, white, you know, anything to imply that there's that this one group of women has enormous privilege and therefore we can dump everything on them. And that has been, to me, one of the biggest shocks of the past, what is it What is it now, seven, eight years, is seeing these men really beating up on women. Do you think that so many progressive men have just been waiting for a moment when they could do this with impunity? Because that's what it kind of feels like. I think they're loving it. I think some men, it's... <laughs> and it, it's, quite, it's quite shocking in some ways how much some men seem to have really embraced this idea that actually you can be really misogynistic and really 
aggressive and even justify violence against women if you can kind of put them in this Karen box or turf box. And if you found the right name to call them, then it's totally fine. And so much of it as well, it's kind of to legitimize things that they want for themselves. You know, you know they're not interested in um, the pension inequality. They're not interested in the pay gap. They're not interested in who's doing the unpaid labor but they're really interested in sex work is work and in calling you a massive bigot if you do anything that questions their right to pay for sex, for instance. Yeah, it's, they, they've chosen particular causes that they call feminist, which actually just meet their own needs. And they are really embracing attacking women who disagree. And I think there is, you know, you get the sense that certain men have, they're on the progressive team they're on the leftist team and it's always been part of the package has always been you've got to be a feminist you've got to kind of go along with you've got to be nice to the ladies or whatever but it's kind of now that that's changed a bit um you know they're really they're quite happy about it and i mean it's not completely new i mean if you think robin morgan's um goodbye to all that you know and a lot of second wave feminism you can see that some of it came out of rage from women at not being included in men's activism in the 60s and early 70s. But um, yeah, it's really quite powerful now, I think. And also the whole gender identity movement is kind of founded on a very regressive idea of what a woman is. And inevitably, as you say in the book, middle-aged women kind of don't fit into that. You know, so much of what, you know, this idea of like a woman gender identity is, is now basically being feminine. And middle-aged women have gone beyond that. We're, you know, we're not feminine. We're mainly pissed off. Yeah, and it's kind of someone who sees woman as a kind of identity doesn't really see. I don't think they see themselves as a postmenopausal woman. You know, that, you know, it is completely embedded in this idea of femininity, which is so artificial. And there is real annoyance, I think, at women who don't conform to that because they're spoiling this whole idea of what a woman is that is very much based around male ideas and male. I find it interesting that you can kind of trace it back even if you look at things that were written about the menopause in the 60s when HRT was first coming out. You had these psychiatrists and doctors writing that, um, you know, when women hit menopause, they just stop being proper women. They become like eunuchs and they, they need treatment. And, you know, I'm not against HRT. I know a lot of women who've really benefited from it but this place where they were basically saying that um if a woman's not feminine she's not a woman she's just this thing and that idea is still very powerful i think I, and also the hrt thing is really interesting because obviously there, there's been this slew of books about the menopause that have come out recently by well-known women such as davinia mccall and i think mariella frostrop and they're all very pro hrt and like you i know lots of women who've been helped by it but you do think at a certain point at what point can a woman just like be our bodies don't need to be pumped up with a hormone that we're not getting anymore is there a, like or do are you just supposed to be on hrt till you're 90 years old like i don't really understand what the argument is anymore no i don't either and it's this idea that unlike with men something goes drastically wrong with us when we hit middle age and i think um it's quite un uncomfortable it kind of meet it coincides with this time when we're meant to suddenly be really unattractive, that we're meant to become invisible that we're meant to be more quiet and when we do speak up we're called entitled I worry about narratives that are really obsessed with correcting middle-aged women, even if they're done in a kind of self-help way, because narratives about self-help and pampering and, you know, me time, they're always quite double-edged for women. You know, are they about making you feel better about yourself or are they about making you more acceptable for a society that wants women to be a particular way? Exactly. I mean, you write in the book about tweakments and stuff, which is something I have managed to totally resist, as anyone can tell by looking at my face, even though I am like, you know, I live in London and I'm surrounded by places that offer them. Um, but like you, I just don't see why putting needles in my face would actually make me feel better. I mean, unless my feeling better about myself is dependent on other people telling me I look better. And I feel like at the age of 45, like I've gone beyond that. Like I don't need people to tell me I look better. I just don't have needles stuck in my face. 
it's really difficult because you're always aware that um, you will be judged on how you look as a woman. And I think this is another thing that's come through in this supposedly progressive politics that actually has a really misogynistic edge. There's a lot of comments about middle-aged women's appearance that are meant to be kind of showing that they're these women are bad politically, this kind of idea that, oh, she's got a Karen haircut, she's got turf bangs, she's got a wrinkly face because she's filled with hate kind of thing. She's all saggy because she's eaten up with like resentment at the fact that sex workers are more attractive than her. You know, you see all these sort of messages that combine um, not being attractive with no longer having political relevance and actually being meant to be quiet. And they're very kind of slippery because it's like, oh, we're not really judging you for how you look. We're judging you for your politics, but we're just like kind of expressing it by criticising how you look as well. And and I find it, I mean, I've not had, as you probably see, I've not had any injections or anything, but um, yeah, I, I do feel self-conscious about how I look and kind of this, and, and you get this kind of... Um, Oh, you would have those opinions looking the way you do, like, which, you know, and I, I know it's nonsense, but at the same time, you are aware that in certain circumstances, how you look is used to discredit and devalue your views. It's true, but I also feel, and maybe I just say this to console myself because I'm too cheap and too scared of pain to go off and have Botox, but I feel even if I looked really attractive, I wouldn't be allowed to have the views that I have. Like they would still be unacceptable, even if I looked like I don't even know who's considered an attractive 40 something anymore. Julia Moore. Um, like I saw an interview with Amanda Holden in the Saturday Times this weekend. And the whole interview is about, isn't this amazing? She's still really hot, even though she's 52. But the only thing she was allowed to talk about was some vitamin drink that she was promoting. And I thought, well, I'd rather look like an old hag and talk about my opinions than have to be all plumped up and talk about a vitamin drink. So if those are my options, I'll go for hagdom. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't a question. That was just a rant. <laughs> um, now, I've had loads of friends texting me who've already read your book. I have to say, Victoria, I've had so many conversations about your book with friends over the past few weeks who everyone I know has just been longing for a book called Hags. And the main thing they'll want to know is how to talk to their daughters about this, how to stop the sexism that young women feel towards older women and how to kind of prepare their daughters and also how to help their daughters fight against it. Do you have any tips for that? It is really hard. I mean, one of the things I sort of wrote about in the book going through was trying to imagine um, how my younger self would have responded to what I'm writing now. You know, you know, if you told me sort of 30 years ago, or one day you'll write a book on feminism, I would have imagined it was would be one of those like, you go girl, show the second wave feminists what bigot hags they are. You would, I would never have imagined I'd come out with something like this. But it's kind of, it is really difficult to talk across that divide. And my mum died when I started writing the book. And I find it quite sad that I can't really talk to her about it now. And, you know, we could never really talk across our different views on on feminism and women's roles and who we want to be. And it's always very hard to kind of look at other women and understand the compromises they've made and understand how they got to the position that they got to, and I only have sons, so I'm not really confronting this as well. And I do sometimes well, think it's- sons are the same. Yeah, I mean, you need to tell them too, to not just assume that middle-aged women are irrelevant and you know have nothing to offer anymore, basically. Yeah, I feel with my sons, there's kind of maybe a layer that's not there. When it, you know, I can talk to them about gender identity and those kind of issues, and they might disagree with me, but there's not a fear of turning into me. There's not that extra kind of, I've got to disidentify from you in the same way because, um, you know, there's a different relationship there. I think um, helping girls to feel confident in themselves rather than confronting them with your own particular views is maybe helpful. But it, I think it's really difficult because you have to hold... The, the women I know who are dealing with that, they have to kind of swallow a lot of their own pride and wait it out and kind of be very patient and kind of be second place to while their daughters work things out with their own bodies and relationships with the world. And I think that's really hard because you want desperately for your children to see that you're a person too. And they have to at some point, but it's... 
it does seem quite striking to me and thinking back on my own relationship with my parents and that daughters kind of need to disown their mothers or almost hate their mothers for a bit in order to grow up. Whereas I'm not sure if the same is true of sons and fathers. Yeah, I was thinking about the Gloria, Gloria Steinem's essay that she wrote on um, sort of younger women and older women and conservatism. She said something about um, a rebellious act you know, a really rebellious act for a son is rejecting the father, whereas a really rebellious act for the daughter is actually embracing the mother and kind of feeling close to her. And I thought that was, I found that quite compelling because I think there is so much around daughters that actually encourages them to disidentify and distance themselves. Which is then carried out in a kind of on a writ large scale in the way they then disown older feminists, basically. It's kind of its own form of matricide. And that point is backed up by Kaz in the audience, which um, prefaces it with comments, not a question. And Kaz says, I'm almost 68. I too used to feel that I would not end up being old. Unfortunately, experience has demonstrated that the only difference between me and younger women is time. I am called Karen and I find the whole thing incredibly distressing, especially when used by younger women. That is an interesting point about how many younger women join in on it. And is that, do you think that comes from a place of almost self-defense or is it um, kind of like trying to prove that they are, you know, that are kind of disowning that they will be older one day or just trying to reassure people around them that they're not on the team with these middle-aged women? I think there is a lot of self-protection in there and, also maybe a kind of, I think for, for younger women who are privileged as well, in the same way this kind of Karen figure is, you know, if you're white and middle class and um, straight. And I think there are so many narratives around you kind of getting you to examine your privilege. I think sort of having a go at the Karen figure, which is basically women like your mum, is a, is a kind of self-defence. And it's also a way of kind of divesting your sort of distancing yourself from privilege that you can't actually help but in, inherit in some way you know this is your heritage it's coming down to you and, and you will become that woman and it I think it's a kind of attempt to push away from it and say that you'll be different and that you'll be better but you have to kind of you have to own it and you have to own your own past as well and your future <laughs> And that brings me to my inevitably favorite chapter in the book, Wrong Side of History Hag, which looks at the demonizing of women and in particular over the past eight years. Do you think that this movement is kind of changing, that the Karen slur is losing its currency? You know, we've seen Keir Starmer walking back from gender identity. You know, it, it's gone from being a given that, you know, we all have to respect this gender identity thing and that middle-aged women are just the worst to slowly a kind of move to the center. Or do you think, it's you know that that Pandora's box has been opened and we can't get it back in. I think um, women are getting more confident in answering back to this. I think when the Karen slur, what do you want to call it, first came out, um, you know, it was very difficult to kind of criticise it because if you criticise women being called Karens, that makes you a Karen. So then like, um, that just proves you're really bad. But then we can't all be Karens. We can't all be TERFs. You know, at some point, um, you have to admit that um, so many women from so many diverse backgrounds can't all have suddenly embraced these kind of evil stereotyped ideas. You know, it's, it's just not, it's not plausible. And at the same time, I think, um, I think it maybe surprises some politicians I think they they maybe thought women would just shut up and forget about this and and it would all go away and they didn't have to look at it very closely or think very closely about it. I suppose the thing I found quite annoying at the moment with gender identity is that I think for years women have been pointing out and they've been doing lots of research and writing and speaking against a backdrop of a lot of threats and a lot of misrepresentation. And yet they've been treated either as um, vile bigots or these kind of mum's net idiots who should just stick to talking about um, baby food. And then suddenly, when you have um, politicians such as Nicola Sturgeon coming up against the reality of what things like gender self-ID mean, it's as though nobody ever mentioned it before. It's as though um, that can't have been what the women were talking about because they were just... They were just the stupid women. They were just the stupid Karens, you know. It's And I, I don't think there'll ever be a point at which anyone says, oh, actually, none of these women were, women were idiots. 
you know, they weren't all wrong side of history bigots and were really sorry. I don't think it, there'll be an apology for it, but I think there will be a backtracking from the kind of ideas that these women were challenging. And it's going to be a bit, it's going to be just like housework, isn't it? Lots of women have done it, but it's kind of invisible and, you know, there's no reward for it. And, um, and some man will come along and take all the credit and then say, why didn't the women say anything earlier? Victoria Smith there speaking to Hadley Freeman. Victoria's book, Hags, The Demonization of Middle-Aged Women, is out now. Well, our time is nearly up, Faye. What's last, but certainly not least, in our pile of great reads from 2023? Food. We're talking food, Connor. Oh, never a chore. Back in September, we enjoyed a conversation with Ravinda Bogle. She's the restaurateur and writer behind Jaconi, her restaurant blending Asian, African and Middle Eastern food for what she calls cooking across borders. Her recent book, Comfort and Joy, combines all of that experience into a great gift for the foodie in your life. Well, I can't wait to get stuck in. Ravinder was in conversation with Kavita Pori, the award-winning journalist and broadcaster, whose book is Partition Voices, Untold British Stories. Now let's join Kavita and Ravinder in conversation. I think dal makhni, which is one of the wonderful recipes in, in uh, Comfort and Joy, and obviously I'm Punjabi, so are you. It pulls at the heart of, of, of any Punjabi. You describe it as a mouthful of memory and mourning for the homeland. And just, just explain what it is about food, the act of eating that takes us back to a different time, a different place, and, and is an anchor particularly for immigrant communities. Yeah, I think it, it is that. I think food evokes memory. It connects you to places and people. And, you know, when I think about the pining people have, immigrants particularly for home, it's it's food that helps them feel settled. You know, you can be far away from home and then if you eat something that feels like it evokes home, you suddenly feel lifted or uplifted. And and that's it. And I, I remember, and I, I know I talked to you about this, but in my last book, Jaconi, I the Jaconi cookbook, I, I wrote a story about guavas and having this memory of being a little girl. And when I'd first come here, you know, I come from this very lush tropical background, uh, you know, backdrop of Kenya, these blue, ever blue skies and colossal trees to suddenly being in a very kind of haggard, very urban London and being quite sickly because it was cold, it was November, I wasn't used to the weather and I was finding it difficult to settle in. And my mother tells me that one night I had seemed to be having a nightmare and I'd been ill for quite a while. And when she came into my bedroom, I was sort of delirious with a fever and I kept telling her that I wanted to eat a guava and I was convinced I could smell guavas in the house. And, you know, she was like, this is England, you don't get guavas. And I was like, no, because when you have a guava in the house, you can smell them. And we had a guava tree in my house in Kenya. And, you know, it's just a lovely thing. And anyway, a, f a few days later, and I'd been sort of ill for two to three weeks, my father went out and got some, you know, out of season, very expensive, underripe guavas from somewhere. And as soon as they ripened, I ate one and I was suddenly better. So I think it was just homesickness that I was suffering from more than anything else. So food is, it really does connect you to, to the sense of home. And do you remember what the taste of that guava was like, even though it was unripe? Um, yeah. Do, do you recall that? I mean, how old were you at the time? About seven it was just, mm. it just felt reassuring. It felt like joy, you know, full of joy, just that flavor of home. You know, I remember longing for many things. And I remember, you know, my grandmother on the phone, she was still in Kenya saying, oh, there are so many guavas. And maybe that's what set me off for this longing for guavas. But it suddenly felt like I was at home. It's funny you say that because I have a memory of my dad. Um, I must have been, maybe I was around the same age, actually. And he was walking in. He'd just come off the plane from India. And he he had a crate of, of mangoes. You know, that the mangoes that are really squashy. They taste totally yeah. different from man mangoes here. And it was a time when you could bring food. And I remember thinking even at the time, what a strange thing to have brought over but it's 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 not really that strange actually it was that yeah. kind of connection to home and I, I don't know what it was like when when you came um 
But was it easy, for example, for your mum to buy spices to cook to cook food that you'd eaten in, in Kenya? Not really. I mean, we used to have to go all the way to, say, Southall or Wembley to find those shops where we could get spices and things. But there were so many things you just couldn't get. So then it was about ad- adaptation. So, and that's, I think, where cuisine becomes very interesting then, because you you kind of, as immigrants, you know, when you come over to a new new nation, things can seem or feel very barren to begin with. And you have this ache and longing for the old country. And then as you begin to settle into your new nation and, and find home, that's when you start to overlay or adapt your recipes. So you become very precious about your culinary heritage or your language or whatever it is. But then it slightly starts to evolve because you are weaving in all the you know, new the traditions or the, the the new heritage in your new nation. And I think by doing that, you're creating a completely new cuisine. And I think that's what immigrant food is. But isn't it also about survival? Absolutely. Adapting, survival. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was telling you earlier that, for example, we would have mango achar, you know, they were raw mangoes, everywhere in Kenya and India, I imagine, and they'd be sort of dried out and then pickled. And of course, they were very difficult to get here, but Bramley apples, British Bramley apples, so plentiful, and they have the same sharpness as a raw mango. And actually, if you salt them, they have a similar texture too. So my mum would make Bramley apple achar rather than mango achar. So much of of the immigrant experience is about loss and you talked about adaptation but when you adapt you're you're giving something else up and 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 that loss is that connection to the to the motherland whether it's the memory or the dress or the language history or or food why particularly for immigrant communities do you think cooking means so much that that link to the past which it is and it's it's a kind of celebration of that but do you think there's also fear about losing that connection and, and everything that that means I think definitely, but I think um, you will find a lot of immigrants that sort of turn to the kitchen. And I think part of that is that when you are trying to do something as, as huge as, you know, find sort of disentangle yourself from your old connections and, and, and find home in a new country, there is so many obstacles and so many difficulties that you face that actually mealtimes become very important. And I certainly think that was uh, true for me, that steady tick of mealtimes, you know, one meal after the other in a very chaotic time is a very reassuring thing. So I think the kitchen becomes a very safe place. Do you think that when you're growing up here, there is this pool of of the first generation who wants to hold on to, to kind of the, the foods and um, the, the history and the connections of the past. And, and maybe when you were younger and you were going to school, you just wanted like a really ordinary packed lunchbox. You didn't, oh God, you didn't, want, yeah. you didn't want anything exotic. Yeah. And I think I remember that. I remember feeling the absolute sort of shame of opening up my lunchbox and, you know, the waft of garlic and cumin uh, from the things that my mom would uh, have packed me and just sort of closing my eyes and praying to God that I'd have a jam sandwich and a packet of hula hoops or something instead. But I think that's that's beginning to change as people are traveling and sort of more sort of adventurous with what they eat. I think that's changing. But certainly in my day, you know, it was kind of a lot of, oh, my God, the stench of your lunchbox and and the shame that was attached to it. But yeah, thankfully, things are changing. And um, when did you have that realization that you wanted to, well, you, 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 you didn't mind that the stench of your lunchbox. When did you say, oh, I, I want to kind of delve deeper into this? I want to cook the foods that my mum's cooked, the food that I remember in Kenya. I mean, I think in, in a way I was living a double life because at home I wanted all those things because I f- felt that they connected me to home. But at school or, you know, through through my sort of young teenage life, I, you know, I wanted to be very British and have British traditions. So, so it's difficult. But I think it was really in my 20s that I suddenly became very proud of where I had come from and, and my culture and my, you know, my history. And I think, actually, I realized then, looking back, that 
a lot of my experience as an immigrant had been cauterized, you know, because I, I was born in Kenya. I'm, I'm British. I have Indian heritage. I'm a Londoner and I'm also a product of, uh, you know, growing up in a very densely immigrant area and all those people who gave me that hospitality, whether it was our Turkish neighbors or our, you know, the, the sort of Chinese supermarket, all those little mini economies of, of supermarkets like Chinese and Turkish and Korean. And, you know, they'd all sort of helped bring me up in a way and had all influenced how I cooked, how I ate, all those things. And yet... I was, um, you know, the brown girl, the Indian girl, I was put into that box. And I think subconsciously when I, when I came up with the idea of Chikoni, my restaurant, I think subconsciously I was answering to that. I was saying you can be a multitude of identities and you can be, you know, you can, you can be, you can, yeah, you, they should be places that speak to everybody, no matter where you're from. And I think Jaconi does that. And I think my cooking does that. We we say we cook without borders. And I think that, you know, borders are for politicians to wrangle with and they just just don't belong in the kitchen. And and so you do you think that, that food can accommodate? I mean, your your writing and your your cookbooks absolutely are are that, that they can accommodate this kind of really complex history. I mean, you yourself, your Punjabi heritage, you grew up in Kenya you live in Britain, you love Italian tiramisu, that that actually food can, can accommodate all these very complex things in a way that real life can't, perhaps. I think so. And I think that we're, we're as people, it's human nature, we're very good at othering people. We're very good at uh, seeing the stranger in other people or fear. And I think actually when you sit down and you're eating someone's food, someone's cuisine, it, it kind of breaks down that barrier. You suddenly understand a part of who they are and it's very difficult then to fear them or think of them as the other. And I think food is a great medium for bringing people around the table and opening conversations. And, uh, you know, I think that's the beauty, especially when we see it at our restaurant because because we cook so much across borders, it gives me so much joy when, you know, people from... We're, we're in Maryland, so it's very international and people will come in from Lebanon or, um, you know, Paris or Egypt and they, everyone tends to say, oh, this tastes like something my grandmother used to cook or my mother used to cook. And for me, I feel a great sense of achievement when people can taste a flavor of home in the food that I'm cooking. It's so interesting you talk about borders and, and it's something that you and I have, have talked about before that... Places like in, in India or, or Pakistan, in, in Punjab, where our families originate from, or Bengal, um, people might have different religions. People may have fought with each other. But the food, barring religious kind of uh, rules, it's, it's the same. And it's the same for other countries that now have artificial borders like Cyprus or Israel, Palestine. And, and actually, that's the thing is that you, you might be at war, but you're eating the same food. And that's a really hard thing to get your head around, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I met someone the other day who said to me that he lives in Britain now, but he went back to his father's farm, which is in Pakistan. And when the border came down, when partition happened, they were they were then in India, but their farm is right on the border. And he said he could not get his head around it because he said, I just saw this fence. And beyond the fence, he said, I saw men on tractors wearing turbans. And I was like, what's that? He's, you know, the, the person he was with said, oh, well, that's India. And it was right there, a stone throw. And, you know, he's looked at these people and were like, they're this, they look the same as us. You know, they're eating the same food. They have the same language, yet there's this border and it just feels wrong. And do you think there can be a kind of redemptive quality to, to food, to the, the idea of sharing, breaking of bread? Yeah, I, I do. I think food is a great healer. I think food is what brings people around the table and opens up conversations. I think it's really important that uh, people break bread together. Yeah, I just, I've seen it happen, you know, many, many uh, things. That there, there's um, 
someone I really admire, and I forget his name now, but he's Lebanese and he runs these sort of um, markets, food markets, where he gets women who are Muslim and Christian to and Jewish to come and cook together. And their food is like almost identical, but it's just women cooking together and people from all over, no matter what their religious persuasion, come and buy the food and enjoy it. And I think that is a really, really positive thing. Just bringing people together through food, it's a great medium. Can food be divisive though as well? I'm just, I'm just thinking, you know, we're talking in very, you know, in glowing terms, but, but food must be a source of division, I, I imagine as well. Well, I think people get very precious about who food belongs to. I've seen that, you know, where, where things come from, you know, people sort of say, like, when you look at something like biryani, like you, people get into fisticuffs about who makes the best biryani. Is it from Hyderabad or is it from Kutch or is it from, you know, people get very possessive about food and who it belongs to and who cooks it best. I've seen that. And um, yeah, how do you mean divisive? Well, I don't know. I mean, we, we, I mean, for example, uh, for, I don't know what you think about appropriation and like chai latte, for example. Does that bother you? Or, or do you just think, actually, that's a great thing if everyone's drinking a, a chai. It might not be perfect, but or, or do you think we have to be quite purist about these things and respectful? No, I think it irritates me when things aren't properly named or, um, or credit isn't given to the communities that they come from or there's there's sort of um, whitewashing over that, you know, where things have come from. But I think food is one of those things actually that shouldn't be hoarded. You know, it's like Christmas, you know, Christmas, no matter what your religious persuasion, you all take days off, you um, might have your own version of Christmas dinner, you will have feel slightly sort of festive and, you know, get friends and family around a table. But that doesn't mean you're Christian. And I think in the same way, I think, in fact, all festivals and food should not be hoarded. They're there to be shared. And also, you know, where do you draw the line? Because you have to really understand the history of food and how it travels and where it came from before you can claim it as yours and just yours. Mm. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your your journey. And we talked a little bit about your, your mother cooking. And then when you, when you were at school, you wanted kind of food like everyone else. But when did you start cooking? And, and what was that like? Was it, was it your mother that first introduced you to cooking? It was. So I grew up in, in Kenya, like I said, I was born in Nairobi, and we lived in an extended family. So there was never, you know, less than 15 people for lunch or dinner, maybe 25 on most days. And it was like growing up in, an, uh, in a Jane Austen novel. We're four girls and my mother had this very Victorian attitude that her girls must learn to, you know, well, must learn this sort of cult of domesticity, join it. And, you know, I'd seen all the women sort of cook, so all these things. And that's what we were told that we should do. And so I remember being aged five and being kind of hoiked off my tricycle and dragged kicking and screaming into the kitchen. And at that time, I, I, I felt it was very, really unfair because all the boys were outside playing and the girls were stuck in the kitchen, you know, peeling potatoes and podding peas and all sorts of things. But actually, it was my grandfather who really made me fall in love with food. And, you know, he was a man who had come from India in the 1940s. He'd run away, landed up in, in Bombay and got on a migrant ship that was sailing to, to Kenya. And he, he and his brother, I think they traveled for something like 26 days. And, you know, I can't Im imagine the hardships that they must have seen, but the ship landed up back in Bombay because something had gone wrong with it. And he lost everything. But he was so brave that a month later, he set sail again. And this time on his own, because his brother refused to go with him. And he ended up in Mombasa. And this is Kenya in the 1940s, when it was still a British colony. So there were racial divides. There were language barriers you know, all sorts of difficulties, alienation, you know, he didn't have very much money. And yet he still found time to fall really deeply in love with this incredible 
alluvial red soil, this very volcanic soil that is so benevolent. And he just completely fell in love with the land and the soil and had almost a sort of religious, you know, relationship with the soil and everything that came out of it, he was so grateful for. And I think I spent so much time on his allotment with him that it sort of made me fall in love with food and also that act of sort of sharing. And I think something about that really spoke to my soul. So I think that's where my love of cooking and hospitality comes from. Ravinda Bogal there, discussing her book, Comfort and Joy with Kavita Puri. Well, I am getting full up now with nourishing chat, tasty ideas and five-star guests, Faye. Terrible food puns aside, it's been a pleasure dipping back into some of the best books of 2023. Well, actually, there's an extra healthy if you still feel a bit peckish, Connor. What about that for a food pun? I can always make room for dessert. Perfect. You can find all of these books and a few more in Intelligent Squared's 12 Books of Christmas list, which we'll link to in the episode description. In the meantime, have a great holiday season. You've been listening to Intelligent Squared Holiday Reads. I've been Faye Adavita. And I've been Connor Boyle. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs>